it was suggested that I do something in um, moral objectivity and moral subjectivity. I said, great, let's do that, but let's put it in the context of uh, the philosophy of religion, the, uh, the moral argument for God, because I think that makes it more uh, interesting and kind of kills two birds with one stone, as it were, when you put it in that context. And I'd already had some pre-existing material I could draw on and <laughs> didn't have to spend uh, quite as much time preparing as I otherwise would have done, so I'm, I'm cheating a bit, you can see. Um, my background, I discovered philosophy um, when I first went to uni. They didn't do it at A-levels in my day. I did classical civilization, and we'd read a little bit sort of ancient Greek plays and done a little bit about sort of Socrates and Plato and so on. And I went to Cardiff to do English and music, and I had to take an extra humanities course, and I took philosophy and then fell in love with it and kept going and went and got another two degrees in it as well. Uh, and I now work kind of freelance. I'm not based anywhere full-time, but I work with a, a Christian educational charity called the Demoris Trust who do uh, philosophy and ethics conferences in schools for A-level students, and I'm nominally two days a week with the College of Journalism in Norway, believe it or not, that uh, teach about worldviews to their journalism students, uh, and so on, so I do that, and then I do sort of publishing and speaking and stuff like this, so it's very nice to, to be able to be with you. Uh, and since I, you know, I, I, I am a philosopher and I also come from a particular perspective on it, as everybody does, and I'm not at all going to hide what that perspective is. It will be obvious that I am a theist and a Christian theist. Um, but uh, in giving you sort of, okay, here's one way in which I would argue for part of what I believe, I'm inviting you to um, feel very free to... Um, interrogate that and to question it and to disagree with it. Um, the great thing about philosophy is that we all uh, agree to disagree with one another in the most agreeable fashion that we can on the basis of a set of shared ground rules. We, you know, hopefully by now all know that, okay, someone gives you an argument and what you do is you say, okay, well, there's the ambiguity of language that it's fouled up on, or this conclusion doesn't follow from what you've said, or I disagree with that premise, and that's why I disagree with your conclusion. And that's fine. And the other person, you know, sometimes you get to these uh, uh, sort of impasses where one person says, well, it just seems obvious to me that, you know, that's true and I can't think of any more basic way of arguing for it. And the person on the other side says, but it just kind of seems obvious to me that it's not true and I can't think of any more basic way of arguing for it. And, and, but at least, at least when you've pursued an argument through to the end like that, you know why and where it is you disagree and you can kind of think, yeah, I can sympathise with the guy on the other side because if I believe what they did there, I can see how they're being rational and kind of following that thought through to arrive at where they do. And I at least understand them more and we're disagreeing agreeably rather than just disagreeing by seeing who can shout loudest in the public square or who's got the biggest baseball bat. You know. So, so that's what I'm doing. So, uh, meta-ethics and God, and I thought I would start off with a bit of a... Oh, that's why that's not working. I need to plug my Ujima flip into the thingy me bob as the technical language has it. With a clip from uh, a bit of an old film now, but The Beach, Leonardo DiCaprio film The Beach. Uh, have, have you all seen this film, or do I need to set up the... I will tell you. Okay, so Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of playing a gap year student and he goes to Thailand and he falls in with this kind of community of dropouts who've set up their own little uh, community on uh, an island uh, or a nature preserve in Thailand. 
uh, and it's a nature preserve, so they're not really allowed to be there. But they're there because it's so nice, because it's a nature preserve. They still have their own little commune. Uh, and they're kind of, it starts off sort of all about hedonism and living the life of Riley, and, uh, and then this is the sort of first problem that's introduced in the film about the lifestyle and the life that he's kind of adopted. Uh, and there are some, uh, some uh, great hawking Swedish chaps who are sort of the, the, the manly providers of the group, and they go out fishing for them and so on, until one day they get attacked by a shark... I won't show the shark attack, it's quite gory. And the shark kills two of them and takes a big chunk out of the leg of the remaining guy who's called um, Christo or Christoph or something. And this is the scene in the film where they've kind of rescued him, but he's, he's in agony and they're kind of treating him in their communal hut. And they're wondering as a community, okay, what do we do uh, with Christo? So here's uh, the clip of what they do with him. So... I've watched that clip a lot of times as a student. I still find it quite moving, their decision to discard Christo off into the jungle and leave him there to die. And then we can all get back to having fun. Yay. And you can kind of see that's quite a nice uh, kind of thought experiment that you could kind of run different um, ethical theories past. You know, what would, what would utilitarians say we should, should do in, in, the, in the situation? Because have we created the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people by carting Christo off into the, into the jungle? You know, he's suffering a lot, but we're all fine. And there's more of us, you know. Um, I sometimes use it as an illustration of sort of Nietzschean kind of uh, uh, social Darwinism as uh, an ethical view. I think it's very interesting when the, the one guy who's sticking up for Christo and they're carting off and he, and he says, you know, you, you bastards, why are you doing this? You're animals. You're behaving like animals to do this. And it strikes me that if you, if you shared Nietzsche's kind of materialistic, the only things that are real is matter in motion. And some of that matter in motion over time happens to have evolved into various different types of animals, one of which is people. Uh, and they, some, some of those animals do that to another of those animals called Christo. And his friend is saying, you know, this is wrong, you shouldn't do this, and so on. You're breaking your ethical obligations by behaving in this way. Um, you're, being, you're just being animals to behave like this. Couldn't the Nietzschean say back, well, duh, we, we are just animals. That is, you're right, that is all we are. So why expect anything different of us? Why expect more? How can you account for there being something in reality that we're, we're kind of breaking this kind of moral law or rule or obligation, how do you kind of square appealing to that kind of moral reality with a worldview that says the only kind of reality is matter in motion? Where would a moral value kind of come from? You might be able to account for moral feelings or kind of gut reactions, so, you know, our evolutionary history has found that it was conducive to the survival of the species that we feel bad about not looking after one of our members who's injured, say. But if you're saying that's all there is to it, to my feeling that what they did was wrong, 
I just have been given a feeling that it's wrong by a completely mindless, amoral, material process that's not aimed at giving me feelings that are true about some independently existing moral reality. It's just that's, that was useful sometime in the past that people feel like that. I could say, well, yeah, you know, I recognise that evolution has given me this feeling that we're, what we're doing to Christo is wrong, um, but hey, that's all it is. Why, why should I pay any attention to that now that I know where that feeling came from? And actually, hey, we all feel a lot better, actually, now that we've done that. It worked. <laughs> if, if survival of the fittest is interested in what's work, what works rather than what's true, they're saying it, it worked for us. You know. um, and it seems to me that if you kind of buy that analysis, you, you, you get faced with a dilemma. You can, e you can either say, okay, the kind of Nietzschean materialistic view is true, and all there are are moral feelings or intuitions or taboos that have evolved or social decisions that we make, but basically ethics becomes a subjective relative to us kind of thing, not something that's out there and discovered by us as, as a sort of real reality. Or you could say, no, my intuition that what they did to Christo is that that was wrong. And by that I don't merely mean I happen to feel bad about it for no good reason, but what they did was wrong. In which case, the kind of Nietzschean materialistic view must be out the window because the two just don't seem to, to fit together. You can kind of have one or the other, but having your cake and eating it seems to be very difficult, at least. Um, so you just, do you see the, sort of a, the outline of the kind of dilemma there about the nature of what you think a moral value is and what you think people and reality that they've come from is like, and how do you kind of square those together? And I think that's the kind of heart of the dilemma. Even before you get into saying, is there some connection between moral values and a religious belief in a god? Actually, the, the first dilemma is, how do you square a belief in a, a completely non-supernatural reality with something like a moral value? Is, is a moral value, if it existed, actually a supernatural thing? just on, in and of itself. So I will pause there before actually launching into looking at the objective, subjective and the, and the moral argument, just having kind of set it up that way and see if you have any questions or reflections or kind of, huh? or yeah, okay, that, that, that's fine. <laughs> kind of see the outline, although you may go in a different direction than I would take it. Okay, well, I, I, I'm sure I'll get to some point where I outrage you enough that you'll want to come back at me. So, uh, ethicists will often talk about these three different levels of thinking about ethics. The applied ethics, the normative ethics, and the meta-ethics. You see what I did here with the whole compass, your moral compass. <laughs> it's a pun, yes. Um, so applied ethics is any kind of, we actually need a decision on what to do about this situation. Christo is here. He's uh, gradually bleeding to death in loads of pain. Um, if we go and get him medical help, that will alert the authorities to the fact that we're here, and we shouldn't be, and we're all really enjoying it. 
say, what should we do? Should we sacrifice our pleasure in order to save him, or should we sacrifice him in order to save our pleasure? You know, given that we're all hedonists as well, that kind of factors into the, the whole film. Um, so that's an applied ethical dilemma. You then get to the level of, of normative ethics, which is where you're trying to at least produce some sort of rules of, of thumb, kind of set of rules that help you to make those decisions. And those rules might, they come in all sorts of, you know, you will have looked presumably at like utilitarianism. That's a sort of normative ethical system. And it says, oh, here's a rule that you should follow that will help you to, well, here's the interesting question. Is it a rule that will help you to discover the truth about what you ought to do? Or is it just a rule that um, we'd like you to follow? Because that's what our society does. You know, it, that, that then you can see how that then impinges on the on the further question, metaethics, about well, what is the nature of morality? When you say, if I follow this rule, it'll tell me what the right thing to do is. Do you mean the subjectively right thing to do? Do you just mean what our culture's decided? You know, you should drive on the left, um, or do you mean something that actually, independently of what we believe or think or decide or happen to? feel because of our evolutionary history or whatever is the right thing to do um, and actually when, you, you, when you're discussing different normative ethical situations and the, you know, the standard way of testing these things is to kind of take a situation like that Christo situation uh, take a normative ethic like utilitarianism or social Darwinism and then say okay what does the utilitarianism say I should do what do my moral intuitions say I should do and then we tend to judge the normative ethic by whether or not it gives us what we think of as the right answer. Don't we? And actually, you, you, when you're trying to say, well, what normative ethic should I adopt? Is, is one more reliable than another, say? And we're testing it against different kind of situations in life and kind of seeing whether it gives us the right answer. Of course, we can't mean the right answer according to the normative ethical system that we're thinking about. You couldn't say, why should I adopt utilitarianism? Well, because it gives you the right answer in this range of moral situations. Well, how do I know that those are the right answers? Well, because those are the answers that give the greatest pleasure to the greatest number of people. Hang on a minute. Why should I adopt the rule that I should always act so as to create the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people? Because it will lead to creating the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, but then you're assuming the, the theory that's actually out for question. You're just arguing in a, in a circle. Now, what we do is we say, why should I adopt utilitarianism? Because it chimes with what you already actually think is right and wrong, really, at least in the major cases. Once, once we've been convinced by a lot of cases, there might be marginal cases that we, they, that we then get convinced by because of the theory. But you always end up judging the, the normative theory by something sort of more fundamental. If you're asking the truth question, if there's no truth question involved, if, if you don't think there are such things as moral truths to be discovered, then why think that it matters what moral norm, you adopt one more theory, say, well, you know, everyone around here seems to be a hedonist, I'll be a hedonist, or whatever. Because, it, hey, it doesn't really matter, because there's no truth about how I ought to act, or what, therefore no truth about what the best way to go about choosing how to act is. 
So you see how these, actually, this depends on this, which depends on this, and this really fundamental question of, well, what are moral values? What kind of existence do they have? What kind of worldview about the nature of reality and people does that imply? And it's out of those things, that sort of dialogue, that we then try and work work out normative ethics and then work out how, how to behave and so on. So, this distinction, hopefully it's quite a clear distinction, but people do make it in lots of different ways. But I think um, at least it, it's one of those concepts that's quite hard, as lots of things are, to just pin down in a definition. It's like, you know, define love for me in three sentences. Like, define, well, you know, that, because we find that very difficult to do doesn't mean there's no such thing as love. Um, but there can be things that we find really hard to define very precisely, but we know they're real. It's just that we, they're, they're so big and important, we can't kind of grasp everything about them. Uh, and it seems to me that maybe, you know, moral values are one of those kind of things, but we can at least, you know, we kind of know what we're talking about, hopefully. When we say, uh, they're either objective, that are they're, they're moral facts, just as much as it's a fact that there's a laptop on the table, there are moral facts. Now, moral facts aren't physical facts, but they're still facts in the same kind of sense, by analogy. And they're therefore independent of the subject, that's, that's me and you and us, and are thus discovered. They're things that we discover rather than invent, as it were. Or, on the other hand, the opposite, of course, would be to be not objective, to be subjective, not independent of the subject, what we think, believe, feel, etc., and therefore relative to the subject or to the, the group of subjects, the society. So you can have individual relativism or group relativism uh, and so on. But I think the relativity of the values, when you kind of end up saying things like, oh, well, that's good for them. Yeah, I can see that that's good for you. What we're really saying is, I can see that you think that that's good, but I disagree. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, the, the commandant of Belson uh, concentration camp, it was obviously good for him to slaughter Jews. But you see, that's ambiguous. You know, do I mean it? it was objectively good for him to slaughter Jews, or that he merely thought it was objectively good to do it, but he was wrong about that, or he had a subjective opinion that he didn't even think was true because he didn't think there are such things as moral truths. It could mean any of those kind of things. Um, but it's certainly the kind of flip side of saying that they're independent of us, discovered in reality, they're not independent of us, they're things that we can um, invent or see through. If we say, oh, well, our ethics comes from our evolutionary history and that's all there is to it, but I've now seen through that, I see that that feeling I've been given isn't reflecting an independent reality about morals. It's reflecting, well, no, it's not reflecting anything about morals. It's just reflecting something about what was useful in the past to the survival of a particular organism or something. I've kind of seen through what morals is. I kind of say is, there's a, a sociobiologist called Michael Roos in America who says ethics is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes and everybody, everybody thinks and believes that objectives is moral but that's only because it was useful that we have that feeling and that belief and it's not true how he gets around saying 
evolution has convinced us that, that morals is objective, but I know that they're not. Somehow I've escaped from this, this programming that all you dupes have fallen into. Yeah, that's quite an interesting question to pose to him, but there we go. So the moral argument, and there are, of course, lots of, when you, any, anyone talks about an argument for God, you have to realize is it's probably a family of arguments that there are half a dozen different ways of pushing, uh, some of which are terrible, some of which are better, and, and so on. Um, but you could phrase it like this. It's just one syllogism. Premise one, if objective moral values exist, then... God, and I put it was a small g, and I'll come back to that later, exists. Premise two, objective moral values exist, from which it follows conclusion, therefore God with a small g exists. Okay? Um, or you could put it like this, and I will, I'll take it in this form, because actually a lot of atheist thinkers, and I'll mainly quote from atheist thinkers on this, actually, because I think that's quite interesting, would agree with this, and you can find lots of atheist thinkers saying this, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Objective values do exist, therefore God exists. That's exactly the same kind of logical meaning. It's just a different sentence, same proposition, as, as we say. Um, draw attention to logical validity. I posit to you that it's a logically valid argument and that all the real debate is over whether or not it's sound, whether or not the premises are true. If they, are they both true? Um, I don't really think there's any debate about any ambiguity of language. When you look at the, the reoccurring terms, like objective moral values reoccurs in the argument, does it mean the same thing? Yes, it does. So it's not ambiguous, and there's, there's, it's logically valid. I think if that was true, and if, that were true, then would that be true? What am I doing? Bump, bump. Uh, like, woo, talking back at me. So, does, does, uh, does, does that strike you as correct? That's the way it strikes me. Uh, but I, I think if you wanted to disagree with the conclusion, the most plausible way of disagreeing with it would be to say that you thought one or other or both of those premises was not true rather than to say oh that doesn't follow well there's some ambiguity there okay now particularly if you read any of the so called new atheist writers like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and so on when they deal with the moral argument they basically deal with it by not dealing with the moral argument they change the subject unfortunately. Uh, it's an old debating trick, you know. Uh, and they will say things like, oh, people talk about morality and, and God and so on, but you don't need to believe in God in order to be a good person. Or you don't need to believe in God in order to know the difference between right and wrong, or to know that torturing small children for the fun of it is evil. Or you don't need to believe that the Bible is the word of God in order to know that you should love your children Okay. Um, to which I would say, absolutely, I agree with all of that, and the Bible itself agrees with all of that. But that was not anything to do with the moral argument. Um, the moral arguments about the meta-ethical issue, it's not anything about normative ethics. 
you can't know the difference or choose between right and wrong without believing in God or something. It's about what we would call moral ontology. Ontology is the, the study of being, not moral epistemology, not how we know stuff. You'll notice in philosophy that we use long words from Greek and Latin when we could use sh- a few short English words. It keeps you know, the outsiders hyperlite out. So, what is stuff and how we know stuff? Um, so, you've got to make sure you know what the argument's about and actually recognise that a lot of the discussion in the public sphere about morals and God are actually talking about normative ethics or people's behaviour or whatever and that's not the moral argument at all um, as Paul Copan who's a theist from America he says belief in God isn't a requirement for being moral the existence of a personal God is in his view crucial for a coherent understanding of objective morality if there is such a thing so you could point for example this is um, St Paul writing in the letter to the Romans in the New Testament and he puts it like this he says uh, when Gentiles, which is what the Jews called non-Jews, when Gentiles who do not have the law, like the law of Moses, do by nature things required by the law, so they don't have the law, they don't believe in the law, they don't necessarily know about the law, but they do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So St. Paul is saying people who don't know about or believe in the law of Moses know through their hearts and their consciences the difference between right and wrong and know that they can do the right thing without believing in the law or, since they're Gentiles, God. So the New Testament itself agrees with Richard Dawkins on this. And there's quite a, you know, very few things that you could say that of, <laughs> maybe. But, but they agree. Now, I think it's always interesting to think about kind of what are the weak points and the, the strong points of an argument. On the weak point side of the ledger here, I would certainly say this. That the moral argument is an argument for kind of God with a small g. Uh, what it actually argues for is the existence of a wholly good, personal, necessarily existent being that transcends humanity. Um, but that's not everything that people tend to mean by God. So the moral argument doesn't do anything, I think, to tell you that there is a being who knows everything, for example, or has unlimited power for example. I think there are other arguments that kind of argue to that, and I think basically when you're, a process of arguing from God generally has to rely on a range of different arguments, just like kind of building up the full picture of a crime scene uh, relies upon a range of different witnesses and bits of evidence and so on to kind of put a picture together that you draw on all of them from. And there's only really sort of one or two arguments in philosophy that attempt to kind of do the whole thing in one, like the ontological argument and so on, but we're not going there today. So it doesn't do the whole thing in one, even if it works. 
on the strong side, it's, it's quite nice and short. You can kind of remember it. It's only one syllogism. It is deductive, but of course that just means that if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. But how much, it doesn't say anything about how confident you're going to be in the conclusion, even if you think that the argument's sound. Because all you need for a sound argument is that you think that the premises are more plausibly true than the denial of the premises. So, say you were 52% convinced that premise 1 was true, and 60% convinced that premise 2 was true, you would see that the conclusion definitely follows... But that's not the same as saying the conclusion is 100% certain. You see the difference between that? It definitely follows, but it's not 100% certain that it's true. Given that you think that the preceding premises are more plausible than the denial, you think the conclusion is more plausible than its denial, but you still might say, well, I, I believe in, in this kind of being with about you know 70% or 60% or whatever. Um, so don't be kind of fooled by the fact that things are in deductive arguments, that that means the conclusion is certain, because it don't. Uh, I think it's grounded in universal daily human experience, because we, we are moral agents, and we, have the, you know, we all watch soap operas, and they completely rely on these things for drama, uh, and all of that. Whereas um, when you're talking about, say, you know, uh, the Big Bang and did it require a cause, and you're talking about cosmology or the fine-tuning of the universe or the information content of DNA or something, you, you have to teach people a bit about science first before you can even launch into an argument. Um, whereas the moral argument for... And, of course, the problem of evil argument against God, both share this in common, that... They're grounded in universal human experience, and everybody can kind of get an in to it quite easily. And also interesting, as I'll show, both of the premises of the argument are defended by atheists. It's just that you won't find any atheists who defend both of the premises. You'll find some atheists who defend the first one but not the second one, and other atheists who defend the second premise but not the first one. And my kind of attitude is, well, that's quite interesting. What if they're both half wrong? Well, then they're both fundamentally wrong <laughs> about the main issue, um, if they're both kind of half wrong in the right direction, if you see, see what I mean. Uh, I mentioned Nietzsche earlier with his fantastic uh, bushy moustache here. The parable of the madman. I think I've got a, a reading of the parable of the madman. Um, you know the parable of the madman from Nietzsche to thus spake Zarathustra? This is um, an Indian uh, Christian apologist called Ravi Zacharias reading Nietzsche's parable of the madman. Kind of links very much with that uh, film clip at the beginning. Nietzsche's parable of the madman from uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. He was one of the first European philosophers in the 19th century um, to say there is no God and that means there are no objective moral values. And we've got to kind of learn to live with that and completely restructure how we think about living as human beings on that basis. And he comes up with this idea of the, the uberman, the superman, um, who realises that there's, there's no meaning or purpose or good or bad in life, and that the only real reality is the difference between strength and weakness. And you get these kind of social Darwinistic kind of stuff that, that um, had quite an influence on the Germans, although Nietzsche himself was not 
anti-Semitic. He was not anti-Jewish. And he fell out with the composer Richard Wagner, who was anti-Semitic. And Nietzsche fell out with Wagner over that. Um, but still, given his, his philosophy that there is actually no right and wrong, he may personally not have disliked Jews, but it seems you could ask the question, does he have any objective basis for disagreeing with people who take his philosophy and say, well, okay, there's no right and wrong, we're going to be stronger than everybody else, I don't like Jews, let's get, them, get rid of them all, it's all about the survival of the fittest. Um, and that's kind of the historical uh, setting uh, of um, the influence of his, his work, because his sister, Nietzsche's sister, was great friends with, uh, with Mussolini and, was, and with Hitler, unfortunately, for the rest of us. Um, but you can kind of see there, he, 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 and he spent in one of his books, which is now rather unfortunately entitled The Gay Science, uh, back when gay meant um, bright and radiant and happy. Um, let's talk about the, the happy life and, and things um, and he spent a lot of time criticising English philosophers who didn't believe in God but still wanted to go on believing in the same kind of morality that Christian Europe had believed in before and he wanted to say no you can't do that you can't have your cake, cake and eat it this is quite an interesting cultural analysis uh, from uh, theist Nancy Piercy uh, and in her book very interesting, nicely illustrated book, Saving Leonardo. It's all about sort of philosophy and culture and film and art and things. Uh, and she suggests that this uh, strict separation of facts from values is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. I think you often hear people saying, you know, um, there are facts and there are values, but that immediately begs the question, that's kind of assuming that values are not facts. They're, they're just opinions, and there are facts and there are values. And that, if you sort of let people get away with that way of dividing up the territory, they, they've already kind of won an argument that you haven't had, at least. People have always known, she says, that there's a difference, a distinction between is what is the case and what ought to be the case, between what you are and what you should be. Descriptive and normative statements. In earlier ages, however, people thought both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false. And we've moved in the last sort of 200 years to a situation where certainly sort of westernized culture does not, does not make that assumption any longer in, for large parts of of society and, and the academy, and we make this kind of fact-value distinction. And we have facts, they're, you know, they're public, they're objective, they're universal, they're discovered. Mainly, we tend to say they're discovered by science as a sort of naturalistic way of looking at things. And then we have values and meaning and purpose and all that. And that's all private and subjective and relative to the individual, and it's invented by humans and not discovered by them. Um, and that is, you know, in historical terms, a very different way of cutting up the territory than before. So we get people like um, Peter Atkins, who's a chemist at Oxford Uni, one of the new atheist guys, his book on beings just out. He says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of requiring reliable knowledge. This guy is clearly not a philosopher. <laughs> um, he doesn't like philosophy uh, he says when the sun dies we shall have gone 
the journey of all purposeless stardust, driven unwittingly by chaos, gloriously but aimlessly evolved into sentience, born unchoosingly into the world, unwillingly taken from it, and inescapably returned to nothing. Such is life. Um, very elegantly put viewpoint. But of course, when he says gloriously, what, objectively gloriously? Or just, is this just a subjective opinion? Particularly given that he thinks the only way to know anything about anything is through science. And science is all about descriptive statements, not normative statements. So if you think that you can only know things through science, of course you end up saying there is no such things as objective moral truths. There's only the fact that people have different opinions and feelings and so on. But that all depends upon this, this philosophy rejecting scientism, this idea that science is the only way to know, to know anything. I've got a fantastic little clip here, it's all over YouTube, of um, Christian philosopher Bill Craig uh, in a debate about a decade ago with Peter Atkins, in which I think he absolutely nails him on this issue, um, which is a triumph for all philosophy departments everywhere. Because whatever, you know, whether you agree with Bill Craig's theism or not, anyone who comes along and says, you know, you can only know stuff through science, let's close down the philosophy department. Uh, <laughs> you can find the whole debate online if you want to see how it applies. But, um, so once you say, okay, you can know things without having to know them scientifically, you can know, that opens the door to the possibility of knowing non-scientifically knowable things, non-physical things. For example, you can't say, oh, well, you, you can't even go there. You at least have to raise the, the discussion, I think. So let me pause there. See if you have any reflections back or anything you want to clarify or challenge or whatever, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the two premises, and we might have some time to look at some of the standard objections at the, at the end as well. We're oh, a very easily satisfied audience. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah, fine, it was. I'm going to dig my drink out. Where did I put my bag? Ah, behind you. Oh, I'll go crooky. No, uh, certainly you shouldn't take Craig as arguing that science is not invalid. There, there's two different statements here. One would be to say, um, you know, you say science is the only way to know anything. And to contradict that, you say, you could say, no, science is not the only way to know anything. 
by which you're granting that science is a way to know some things. You're saying, yes, you can know stuff through science. It's just that there's stuff that you can know without going through science to know it. And that's different from saying, uh, oh no, you know, knowledge doesn't come from science at all. It comes from other stuff. So those are two very different kind of statements. And I don't think, well, I know Craig is, is not saying, you know, a pox on science. He's saying a pox on scientism, the view that you can only know stuff through science. You see the, the difference there. Um, because, but the, the relevance to the, the territory here is, is if you can only know stuff through science, then moral statements being normative rather than descriptive would not be things that could be known. Even if they you know, existed, they couldn't be known. And so we couldn't make claims about their existence or anything. And so we just have to abandon the whole discussion. If you say, ah, oh, but hang on a minute, it's not true to say that you can only know things through science, then it becomes a possibility that maybe, if there were objective values, you could know that. You haven't made the claim that there are or that we do, but you've kind of cleared the table to allow the argument to, to advance. But you don't, it's not being down on science to say it has its own certain methods and its own sort of range of interest. And actually, that's great, but hey, it, science itself depends upon all sorts of things that you can only know philosophically. And it doesn't deal with a lot of stuff that is interesting and important. That's, yeah. The thing I would say, though, is um, saying that those science can't work, I'd say, rather than saying everything lumping everything together, I'd say science has the ability to prove everything physical that exists. So everything mm. you can touch, so it's all your senses with regards to that. And then I would argue, though, things certainly that wouldn't make brain brain out that science mm-hmm. can't have all things which can't be experienced and now part of the experience of physical mm. has to do with more psychological sort of like angles and things yeah technically for example they would but technically don't exist because they've been invented by humans if there weren't humans none of that would exist in any way ah. in the universe well there I think you're, import- you're importing a certain view of those things there is of course a, a debate yeah, about yeah yeah, that, that's right. But what, we'll see, since we have that argument, the mere fact that we're having the argument about, you know, what well, is beauty merely a human idea that we've constructed through language, or is it a real thing? You know, when I say a rainbow is beautiful, is that statement a truth about an objective reality, or is it just a, a truth about how we've decided to use language or it's whatever? You know, since we have that argument, Underneath our disagreement is a deeper agreement. We're agreeing that it's possible to have that argument. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But if scientism is true, it's not possible to have that argument. You see, because you can only know stuff through science. <laughs> um, so you, you couldn't even ha- you couldn't even entertain the question. Well, maybe beauty is objective. Let's have an argument about whether or not it is you would say, beauty is not something you can know through science. We can't know anything about that. We can't even discuss it. Go away. Well, yeah. See? I wouldn't agree with that with science as well. I would yeah. agree with the premise of it. It does it again. The physical world of science is the one thing that can be used to. That's right. You're making an ontological claim about what, what kind of things are real 
rather than Florentine is an epistemological claim about how we know stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you're 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 agreeing with me that scientism is wrong, the epistemological claim is wrong, and so we can have the debate about what kind of things are real, are moral values real or not. It's just that you're on one side and I'm on the other. But you see, the, the, the fundamental agreement between us is that scientism is out the window. And you need it to be out the window just as much as I do in order for us to have a... for you to think it's sensible for us to even have a discussion about the nature of beauty or... You kind of see? Yeah. Okay, no, no, that's very, that's very good. It's good to clarify. And you see why philosophers are always making distinctions between things. It's like, oh, I see where our, where our confusion is coming from. It's because, you know, you think I'm talking about ontology and I'm talking about epistemology. <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. Okay, so what, how's our timing going? And when, when are we... We have another hour. We have another hour. So I, I'm going to have to go a little quicker. Um, let's have a look at this. Why, why might you think this is true? Let me give you some very brief arguments. Um, when you think about what is a, a moral uh, fact, if there are any, if there are any... Um, you say, well, it's a moral ideal. It's ideally you should behave this way. It's different from what is the case, it's what ought to be the case ideally. It's something that prescribes our behaviour, it doesn't just describe our behaviour. You know, moral law, if there is one, isn't something that just describes how people do behave, it prescribes, kind of commands how we should behave. And it's something that obligates us. If there are moral facts, you know, if it's a moral fact that torturing a baby for fun is wrong, <laughs> then I have, an, I have a moral obligation to not torture babies for the fun of it. Okay? So, if there are any objective moral facts, they seem to be ideals that prescribe and obligate human behaviour. And then you could say, well, surely, if there's an ideal, an idea requires a mind. How do you explain the existence of an ideal about how things should be rather than how they are, apart from saying, well, it's an idea in a mind. Uh, a prescription requires a prescriber. How do you have a command without a commander? Um, does a command just kind of pop into existence from nowhere? You know? Or an obligation. If I'm obligated to behave in certain ways, then surely that means there's someone to whom I am obligated. But if it's an objective obligation that transcends individual people and, and us... That would be relative, it's an objective obligation. Who's that person to whom I'm obligated, if it's not me or you or us? Um, if there is, of course, that's you know, one premise rather than the other. So that would be the kind of arguments that people will give. And actually, you know, some atheists disagree with that, but lots of atheists agree with, with that. Um, this is H.P. Owen's way, his fierce way of, of putting out quite like this. He says, on the one hand... Objective moral claims transcend every human person. That's why you know, whole societies can be wrong about things. And moral reformers who say, no, we've all got it wrong, guys. We need to give up slavery can be right. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. Um, the only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of something, call it, call it God. Um, so Nietzsche, as we've seen, he said things like, when one gives up the Christian faith, you pull the right to Christian morality from out of one's feet. 
that's probably not quite right, but if he, if he was saying belief in God and to, to objective morality, that might be, might be right. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist. Hello, it's right. Existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists, for along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven, these kind of moral ideals. Where are, where are they? Um, William Provine, in his kind of statement of his worldview, makes this connection that, between there are no gods, no, no supernatural beings of any kinds, no ultimate foundation for ethics. Richard Dawkins, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, i.e. no creator, no gods, no evil, no good. So he says, no gods, no good. It's pretty hard to defend absolutist morals on grounds other than religious ones, says Richard Dawkins. Um, and here's one of the classical reasons why. Um, he says, when he's saying that belief in, in Darwinist, Darwinism as the evolutionary theory doesn't justify social Darwinism. You can't draw the link and say, because Darwinism is true, therefore we should be social Darwinists. He's against social Darwinism. He would disagree with Nietzsche on that. He says there's no logical connection between what is and what ought. And he's kind of drawing this fact-value distinction. Um, if somebody used my views to justify a completely self-centered lifestyle, um, I'd be fairly hard put with it to argue with them on intellectual grounds I couldn't ultimately argue intellectually against somebody who did something I found obnoxious. I could only say, well, in this society, you can't get away with it and call the police. So he wants to say, on the one hand, just because Darwinism's true doesn't mean we have to be social Darwinists. But if someone does things that I morally disagree with, the only thing I've got is the law of the jungle. I'm more powerful than you are, and you can't get away with it, which seems like social Darwinism uh, to me. This is a little snippet from a radio interview that he did. And the journalist asked uh, Dawkins about his views on moral judgments. He says, when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this whole evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's good. And you don't have any way to stand on that statement? And Dawkins says, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. So I'm saying, but remember, this is an epistemological matter. I could feel this way about torturing small children for fun because of what's happened in the past. Um, the journalist says, so therefore it's, it's just as random in a sense as any product of evolution. Dawkins, you could say that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, nothing about it makes it more probable that there's anything supernatural. He kind of sees the direction the conversation's going into. And the journalist says, but ultimately your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six? And Dawkins said, you could say that, yeah. So what he's really saying is morality is just a feeling about things that we've been given because it was useful to survival in the past, but there aren't any actual sort of objective truths about values. There are facts, and then there are values, and they're not really, they're not really facts because it all comes from this purely material process. If you say it comes from evolution, full stop. That's, you could of course say it comes from evolution because God wanted to give us those feelings through that process, etc., etc. 
Julian Bugini, um, editor of the Philosopher's Magazine, which is a nice uh, magazine to get hold of if you're a philosophy student. If there's no single moral authority, no God, we have to, in some sense, create values. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you can't say I've made a factual error. Um, J.L. Mackey from Oxford, in his book The Miracle of Theism, he said, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. And of course, this guy's an atheist. So, if he's an atheist and he believes that, what, what does he then do with this whole area? Well, he does this. He says, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. So, if moral objectivism is not true, there's no, no issue here. And actually, he wrote a book famous book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, which was all defending moral subjectivism. How many of you can remember what the opening sentence of that book was? Oh, have you, you studied Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong? You looked at it. I should have remembered, I really can't. <laughs> the objective moral values. There we go. So... He disagrees with one of the premises of the moral argument, but he agrees with the other one. And it, it almost seems to me that the reason that he adopts the subjectivist position about morality is at least partly because he accepts that if there were objective values, it would contradict his atheism, and he's very committed to the atheism, and maybe he's got other reasons that he thinks defends that, and therefore kind of makes the deduction, well, therefore, this would be, better be the way that I go on the ethical discussion. So this is why I think the rubber hits the road. I think this is the crucial question. Which is really the bigger problem, as it were? All arguments do is they kind of weigh two things up together, and they try to attach a price tag to rejecting the things that lead to the conclusion. And any individual has to kind of look at that argument and say, do I think that's a well-constructed argument? Am I prepared to pay the price tag attached to rejecting the conclusion? What do I have to believe in order to avoid believing that this conclusion is true? Am I prepared to do that? Well, if I am, then I can, I can not believe the conclusion of the argument, obviously. And I, that, you might do that rationally, you might do that irrationally. Um, you might think you've got good reasons for for it, or you might not have, but that's the, the kind of, the balancing up that, that's going on. So which is the bigger problem? Having to believe that some kind of a god exists, on the one hand, or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true, in order to escape that, if you buy into the premise that we've looked at, which you might not. The other side of the coin is called premise two, but anything on premise one there. Now, I quoted from quite a few atheists who agree with it, but there would be quite a few atheists who disagree with it, of course. Um, they tend to be atheists who object, who accept this premise, because yeah. then, you know. See, they, one thing I always agree with is that I will say that if objective moral values were to exist, it doesn't necessarily point to God. That's yeah. You don't necessarily, I, I don't believe that there has to be necessarily the same. Obviously, I don't know, a few points about the authority and things, but mm. um, 
for example, with the Swords of Moab, there's like the ideas of like karma within Buddhism and stuff like that. The idea of the objective moral values, but there's no mm. um, deity as such that above and Yeah. Authority and authority. The uh, what was it? Just the ideal, the prescriber, and the obligation. The yeah. I'd say then in that case, rather than God being the one to which the authority or such as is to yourself rather than to another being, because mm. then in evolutionary terms, the reason you're behaving that way is it's like with dogs, like the selfish genius. Mm. To, to self-preservation to benefit you well to benefit my genes yeah effectively um, which is effectively yeah. you but if I've, if, I've kind of, if I've seen through what my, morality is an illusion fobbed off on me by, by my genes for their benefit um, I can decide okay I'm going to play along with that but it's, it seems hard to say that someone who says oh I'm not going to play along with that has done anything objectively wrong They've just taken a different personal decision about how they're going to react to the situation they're in. Um, certainly, uh, because you can mount those different arguments, you might be able to say there are some worldviews that could account for the existence of moral ideals, but couldn't account for moral prescriptions or obligations, um, say. So maybe uh, a kind of supernaturalistic worldview like a Buddhist one, you might think can account for objective ideals existing. Although, you know, it's a sort of impersonal God, so I'm gonna, but you know, maybe you can do that, but then you, you, you're kind of narrowing down the arguments and saying, well, but what about the argument from prescription, or what about the argument from obligation? If it's an impersonal one, how do you account for the reality of obligations? Wouldn't you really say, well, there, there are no obligation, personal obligations, because ultimately there are no people in that worldview. The whole point of the worldview is to stop being a person, an individual consciousness indeed. Um, so you, you'd have to kind of break down those, you could kind of construct three different moral arguments, if you like, and I've kind of shoved them all into one moral argument, but you're absolutely right, you could divide them and say, well, I think this, this, this strand is no good for pointing to God, although it does point away from naturalism, or materialism, say, but what about this strand and that strand? So I think you're taking the right um, kind of dissecting up the territory approach there. Yeah. Can you remember, um, we, we did look at this, I think, in year 12, um, the debate between Lenin Craig and Kai Nielsen. Hmm. Nielsen made a distinction, do you remember what it was, about moral values? Do you remember? He distinguished between objective values and absolute values. And he thought that he had an argument for the objectivity of moral values mm. that didn't require an absolutism that was dependent on the supernatural. <coughs> yeah. And, and basically, it was Thomas Hobbes' argument, really, wasn't it? That uh, life would be through and through miserable if we weren't nice to each other. That's a perfectly objective explanation yeah. of morality, but it doesn't depend yeah. on absolutism. Yes, that's right. In a sense, I'd, I'd kind of respond to that view by saying, okay, you, you've given an account of a reality that's an objective one. It's just not a moral reality that you've given an account of. All you've said is, let's mean by the word moral pleasure or pain or, you know. And I say, well, moral means a ideal way of behaving that is prescribed to us and to which we have an obligation. And if you kind of 
okay, if you change the meaning of the word, then you can go off and argue in some some other thing. Um, but, but you know, if I put up a certain definition, what Kyle Nielsen is really saying is, well, according to that definition, no, there are no objective moral values, just like J. J. L. Mackey. Yeah. Uh, the basic way into this these days seems to be the principle of credulity. Have you done the principle of credulity in Richard Swinburne and, and so on? So you know this. Take things as they seem to be until you've been proven otherwise. Um, I'm going to skip through that illustration in that case. So the way I come at this is, is following that. It's basically to say, look, I have this properly basic intuition that torturing a baby for fun is wrong. Okay, there might be hard cases to talk about, but there seem to be a range of clear cases where I just think moral truth claims are just obvious. It just seems that way to me really strongly, and the burden of proof is on anyone who wants to say that although, you know, despite that appearance, it's an illusion or a delusion of, of some kind. So the argument would basically go, you know, if anything is objectively wrong, then moral subjectivism is false. Torturing a baby for fun is something that's objectively wrong. Beep. <laughs> Therefore, subjectivism is false. Okay, so it seems a nice straightforward argument, and the, the backup for premise true to is simply the principle of credulity. Um, so oh, Dawkins again makes this distinction again. He makes the fact value distinction between facts that you can know through science and normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. Um, which is really interesting when later on in the same book he then comes on to saying things like Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men. In which I say, well, yes they were, but you don't believe there are any standards. You've just said things about facts, morals are not true or false. It seems like he's saying that this is true, but you have to remember, of course, he's not. And so when he says, you know, religious people, because of their religion, do evil things, what you have to remember is that Richard Dawkins doesn't mean it. <laughs> if you take him at his own word, he doesn't mean it. Um, now that principle of credulity argument, I think you can kind of tighten it up even, even more uncomfortably for the moral subjectivist. Um, when you look at things like when Frederick Nietzsche, because of his moral subjectivism, said things like, why should you pay attention to truth? Why should, should I be someone who pays attention to truth, who's interested in a fair argument about someone, who when uh, I make an argument in favour of moral subjectivism, thinks that the other person should pay attention to what I'm saying, take me seriously, consider the merits of the argument, and change his mind if he sees that my argument for moral subjectivism is a good one. Doesn't all of that actually depend upon the assumption that I would be doing something objectively wrong if I didn't listen to you, stuck my fingers in my ears and went la la la, etc. Um, a moral subjectivist, in other words, would contradict themselves were they to claim that people objectively ought to believe the conclusion of any argument for moral subjectivism. Therefore, there cannot be a sufficient counter-argument or counter-evidence to the belief that there are objective moral values. Remember, the principle of credulity says, believe things are the way they seem to you to be unless you've got sufficient reason to think otherwise, to think you're wrong. But in the case of objective moral values, it seems to me that there can't be 
sufficient counter-evidence to the intuition that torturing babies for fun is wrong, because any argument against that intuition will itself depend upon moral intuitions about objective facts of morality. Which if I say, well, those are just subjective things, I don't need, you know, there's, there's no real obligation on me to pay attention to your argument, so I'm not going to. <laughs> um, it seems to me that the price tag attached to moral subjectivism is going, if I behave like that, react like that to, to your position, is you have to be prepared to bite your tongue and say, okay, fine, you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> it's just, I think the second one that you thought is a sort of strange one there's, I, I see where you're coming from with what you said but it's I find it a very odd notion that you're saying that there's literally no way of using that subjective viewpoint that you I think different kind of all the differences with using these evidence as though uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it mm. It's almost as though you're trying to prove, like, actually, no, it does make sense about it, but as though you're trying to prove, obviously, a fact because you're the leader of Chicken Morgan. So, the thing is, though, yes. It's a great story, before, but you can't, they're not true as such because you can't prove them in science, so, think about it. Yeah. Again, actually, now, I see why you think I just would that take issue a little because of what I think? Yeah, okay. Uh, again, it's an epistemological claim. I'm kind of saying yeah. moral subjectivism could be true, but it's self-contradictory to argue that it's true. Oh, yeah, yeah. You see? Agree. And so since I believe that moral objectivism is true and moral subjectivism false on the basis of the principle of credulity, okay, uh, although that principle says... You know, it has this unless I'm shown to be wrong clause given that I am in that position I don't think I can be shown to be wrong because and how, how, how could I think okay, if I believe in objective moral values at the moment I think I have an obligation an objective moral obligation to try and be rational to pay respectful attention to arguments for positions that I disagree with and so on but if the conclusion of an argument is that I don't actually have any such obligations. As soon as I kind of buy into the argument, I'd be cutting off any reasons that I had for believing that I ought to buy into the conclusion of the argument. Yeah. Because I'm now, I'm now, you're asking me to move to a position which says that I don't have any obligation to move to your position if I see that you've got a good argument for it. The way we discussed it in class, I don't know if you remember this, was we took the premise um, all subjective opinions are equally valid. Remember that? And then we looked at the, um, the proposition, it is my subjective opinion that all subjective opinions are not equally valid. Yeah. And that must be therefore true on the basis of the original yes. premise. But it also contradicts the original, yes. and so it can't be true. And yeah. so you, you get a self-contradictory yeah. thing out of it. Yeah. So it is an epistemological argument, but I, I, I think it's still a kind of bitter pill for the subjectivist to swallow to kind of say, okay, given that I believe in subjectivism, I can kind of see that 
I don't have any right to expect anyone else to agree with me. However convincing an argument I think I have for my position. That's a kind of, that's quite a hard philosophical position to take, I think. Where would I? Because you said uh, the subjectivist would then have no right for anyone to think that they should agree. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I that's right. I, I think that you do have an objective right to expect other people to pay attention to your arguments and to consider them fairly, and so on. Um, it's just that any argument for subjectivism, when you consider it fairly, living up to your moral obligations to be rational and so on, is an argument that when you look at it, undercuts, if you were to agree with the conclusion, any objective reason you have for following the argument or paying attention to it or being respectful of it and so on. It, it says you don't have any moral obligation to, to, to believe this conclusion if you think that it's well supported. You know? Because we, we have choices about whether or not we pay attention to arguments and consider them fairly and give them their due weight and so on. But it's kind of, how can I give due weight to an argument that's arguing for a position that says nothing has any due weight? In, in moral terms, I, I think it's, it's, from my position, it's false to, just as it's false to make the fact-value distinction, it's false to make a, a hermetic distinction between rationality and morality. Because I think our experience is that actually those interlock all the time, and we, we do say to people things like, oh, come on, be reasonable, in a kind of moral sense, not in a, oh, oh dear, you know, his, his cogs aren't working properly. It's kind of, you've actually got a responsibility to make sure your cogs are in working order, you know. Um, which, of course, you don't if, if moral subjectivism is true, because there are no objective responsibilities and so on. So I'm with people like Kai Nielsen. Hey, Kai Nielsen. Uh, who, uh, despite being a subjective, he says, moral truisms are as available to me or any atheist as they are to a believer. Absolutely. Epistemological. You can be confident of the truth. Maybe he changed his mind or was in a different mood when he said this. I don't know. The truth of these moral utterances, they're more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. So basically he's saying, take the statement, killing small children for the fun of it is wrong. Put that in the balance pan against any argument for moral subjectivism. And all of those arguments, even put together, are going to be less strong than the intuition that torturing small children for the fun of it is wrong. You know, um, and it would take a heck of a lot to convince you um, against that, I think. Uh, British atheist Peter Cave heads up the philosophers group of the British Humanist Association. He says, whatever sceptical arguments might be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we're more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong, full stop. Well, yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, Russ Schaefer-Landau, he's got a fantastic and very readable book called Whatever Happened to Good and Evil. Uh, he's an atheist philosopher. He disagrees with the first premise of the moral argument at the back of the book, but he agrees with the first premise. He says some moral views are better than others. 
despite, irrespective of the sincerity of the individual's cultures, societies that endorse them. So sincerity and conviction is beside the point, it's whether it's true or not. He says some moral values are better than others, some are true, some are false, and my thinking them doesn't make them, so I don't invent them, like Mackie thought. Individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. Even though the whole society thinks it's a good thing to segregate black people from the white people, well, all the white society think that, if they're the majority. And just because they're the majority, does that make them right? If the whole society thinks keeping slaves is a good thing, or, or you know, we're Spartan society, and we think it's a good thing to leave all of our uh, disabled children um, out on the mountainside to die. Very social Darwinist, the Spartans. If you've seen the 300 film, yeah, you've seen that. Um, we can be seriously mistaken, and the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making. Um, and therefore, irrespective of however hard we try to make things or decide things, we can be wrong. But if both of those sets of atheists are kind of right in their defense of each of those premises, then they're wrong about their atheism. That's the, the kind of interesting issue here. Um, so, but again, as I say, it's a kind of you pays your money, you takes your choice kind of situation, which which is is more problematical, accepting this or rejecting one of these. Um, maybe both of them. You only have to you don't have to reject both of them in order to avoid the conclusion. Only one of them. One of them will do it. Everything has to work in an argument for the argument to work. Only one thing has to go wrong. That's why it's tricky making arguments work, because there's more ways of going wrong than there are of going right in an argument. <laughs> why it, take, it takes effort. Hey, okay, we've still got a time to look at some of the, the main objections that are on there. We've got exactly half an hour. Oh, well, there we go. Um, so I have a look, look through. Quite a lot of the A-level textbooks seem to mention something called the outlook difference argument from moral relativism. And if you've come across that, the tolerance argument and the euphipro dilemma. I always have trouble pronouncing that because I list my... Euphipro, euphipro, yeah. It's from a dialogue by Plato in which he raises the, the, the issue. It's a very interesting one. Um, so the outlook different argument, for, this is an argument which seems to be the main one that the textbooks look at for moral subjectivism. Uh, premise one, claims about ethics are subject to unresolved dispute among thoughtful people. Well, that does seem to be true, but it is a bit ambiguous, because does this mean all claims about ethics, in which case it seems to be false, or does it mean some claims about ethics, in which case I'd probably grant that, it, that it's true, and you know, do you have to have unanimous agreement on something? You know, or do we discount the psychopaths? You know, they don't get a vote. Or so there's there's a little bit of ambiguity in there, maybe to to be thought about. Second premise: if a claim is subject to unresolved dispute among thoughtful people, then it isn't objectively true. Conclusion: therefore, claims about ethics are not objectively true. Hmm. Well, one problem with that might be you could say, well, hang on a minute, isn't subjectivism a claim about ethics? And therefore, subjectivism is not objectively true, and therefore it's false. 
Um, it seems to me that this, this argument is replete with a bit of ambiguity. <laughs> I might be, I don't know, I have to think more about that one. Am I playing on an ambiguity in the argument there when I respond like that? Or um, Perhaps you could adjust it by saying... Um, Claims about positive claims about ethical realities or claims about objective moral values are subject to unresolvable dispute. Any claims that are subject to unresolvable dispute, therefore moral claims are not. You can see, you can kind of tinker around with the, with the argument. Shafa um, Landau makes this point. He says, We are not entitled to conclude from the fact that even brilliant physicists disagree amongst themselves that there are no objective truths within fundamental physics. Physicists disagree about all the time. You know, is string theory true or not? They disagree. Does that mean there's no truth of the matter? Probably not. Um, if scientific disagreements don't undermine the objective statements of science, then moral disagreements shouldn't undermine the objective statements of morality. Just because we can't decide what is right or wrong doesn't mean there isn't a right or wrong. That, again, in a sense, would be to conflate the sort of epistemological issue with the, with the moral issue. My, my illustration for this is um, supposing uh, thinking that there are objective moral truths is like thinking there's buried treasure on an island. I think there really is buried treasure somewhere on this island. Um, that's moral objectivism. Um, the question, how do I get the treasure? Do I know where it is? Where should I dig? That's a question of epistemology, and that's normative ethics. The meta-ethical question is, is there any treasure buried somewhere on this island or not? Um, and so just because we you know, can't agree where we should dig doesn't mean that there isn't any treasure somewhere, basically. And also, Landau then points out, he says, look, moral subjectivism is itself the subject of unresolved dispute amongst thoughtful people. If we grant the principle that the other argument used, if a claim is subject to unresolved dispute among thoughtful people, then it isn't objectively true. Then moral subjectivism is not object objectively true. So he puts that kind of, kind of, kind of doesn't this kind of boomerang back on you when you try it? Is moral objectivism intolerant? Paul Copan again, although many accuse objectivists of intolerance. You know, you're intolerant because you believe that there are these objective universal moral values that apply to everyone, that apply to me even though I don't believe in them. And you want to say things like, although you believe that keeping slaves is the right thing to do, actually you're doing something wrong. And that's intolerant. Yeah. Although many accuse objectivists of intolerance, the accusers most likely have an unclear notion of what tolerance really is. Contrary to popular definitions, true tolerance means putting up with error. I tolerate something with which I disagree. If I don't disagree with it, I don't tolerate it. I endorse it, because I agree with it. See, I can only tolerate something that I don't agree with. But I say, in cases where I put a higher value on tolerating say, people's freedom to choose as they will in the area, even though I disagree with them. Or I tolerate the value of people's ability to believe whatever they want, even if I disagree with them. 
And I, I value that freedom more than I would value everybody having the same opinion under a situation where they didn't have any choice about it. And so I'm kind of, it's a kind of lesser of two evils situation when you tolerate something. You say, well, I, I don't like the fact that they've got the wrong, the wrong ideas. It would be much better if they had the right ideas, of course. But they should have the freedom to have the wrong ideas, and I would defend their right to disagree with me to the hilt, kind of thing. That's tolerance. Tolerance does not mean being accepting of all views. We don't tolerate what we enjoy or approve of, says Copan. We tolerate only real evils in order to prevent worse evils. We do not tolerate good, we promote it, says Peter Kreft. And you might actually argue, of course, that only a moral objectivist can coherently believe that they objectively should be tolerant. We objectively should be appropriately humble, gentle, tolerant concerning matters of moral disagreement. If you're a moral subjectivist, you can't say that someone who's being intolerant is doing anything objectively wrong. So if you value tolerance, it seems the best way to value tolerance is to be a moral objectivist. Uh, you know, of, course, of course, there are moral objectivists who are hypocrites or who behave wrongly or whatever. <laughs> But when they do that, at least if you're a moral objectivist, you can say, hey, you're being hypocritical and you shouldn't do that to them. <laughs> right, this is, this is the most talked about one from Plato, Euphysio, uh, and it, Socrates in this dialogue asks, is what is holy, or what is good, is what is holy, holy because the gods approve of it or do they approve it because it's holy and this is mainly a response to taking that argument about how can there be a moral law a moral prescription without a prescriber and if you say okay well okay that's interesting and you've accounted for this existence of a moral law a moral prescription by appealing to some prescriber that transcends us but why does that prescriber utter that prescription? Why, why does that god or those gods make that command? Is it arbitrary? Could they have commanded differently? Is it just a, a sort of matter of happenstance or chance or contingent that torturing small children for fun is wrong? If the gods had said, actually, torturing small children for fun is a moral obligation that everybody ought to obey. You know, are you going to say, well, then, in that case, it, obviously, it would be good objectively good to torture small children for fun doesn't that make your, your theory of, of, of objective morality just arbitrary and just as relative as subjectivism really um, so is what's holy holy because the gods approve it command it or do they approve it and command it because it's holy in which case, its being holy is uh, something that's independent of the fact that the gods command it. So why appeal to the gods? See the dilemma. So you either say, no, they, it's arbitrary. Oh, that's difficult to swallow. Or I better say that it's independent of the fact that they command it. But then you don't need to appeal to the gods' commands in order to justify why something is right or wrong. But our friend, <laughs> you, by, by noting that we, 
we had kind of three different arguments going on here. You've probably noticed that what's going on here is taking one argument and applying it to another one. There's the argument about why are there moral facts, moral ideals, and there's an argument about how do we account for the prescriptive nature of those ideals, that there are these prescriptions. And this argument is kind of saying the argument from prescriptions isn't the argument from moral ideals. Well, but no, obviously it's not. But it was never claiming to be. There's an argument from moral ideals as to why there are moral ideals. The argument from prescriptions is simply an argument trying to say, given that there are these ideals and we've noticed that they have the form of, of prescriptions, could you account for them in impersonal, non-personal terms? No, it must be a, a person, a prescriber. Um, so it's telling you something about the nature of, of mor- morality more broadly construed. So, dilemma. Are God's commands arbitrary or is there some standard of goodness independent of God's commands to which his commands must conform in order to be good? We either ground morality in God's commands or we don't. Moral ideals, that is. If we ground them in God's commands, morality becomes arbitrary. Things are only good because God's commands it and he could have commanded the opposite. But if we don't ground morality in God's commands, then morality must be independent of God's commands. In which case, why bring God into the explanation? Well, the classic response to this is to say, yes, this is all, this is all true. This is all true. I agree. And objective morality is not arbitrary. Something is not right because God commands it. Although that does explain why there are moral descriptions different argument and it's true that if we don't ground morality in God's commands then we must ground it in something that's independent of God's commands that's true but of course it doesn't follow from that that we must ground morality in something outside of God because there's more to God than his commanding of stuff it doesn't follow if you say because you've got to ground objective morals in something besides God, the fact that God happens to command certain things, another premise, what would it be? Conclusion, therefore, objective morals don't depend on God. You don't need to bring God into explaining it. The missing premise, what would that missing premise be? If you... If you can't explain objective morals with reference to God's commands, oh, still, I don't know the difference from God's nature, so it wouldn't come out that. Yeah, so you, you, the, the missing premise would be the assumption that all there is to God is God's commands, which, on any conception of God, is it's not true. It's just a false premise. Um, so, moral value can be independent of God's commands or his or independent of his choices without being independent of Him if they're part and parcel of the divine nature, if God has this necessarily good nature, he would then happen to issue commands in line with that nature, which would explain why there are prescriptions. But the explanation of why there are objective moral values, ideals, that explanation is not that God commands things, but that there is an all-good person. 
a necessarily existent, necessarily all good person. That would be the explanation. So the Euphysio dilemma is, is kind of, it's, it's true, it's, it's pointing out something that's right, but it's kind of a red herring in as much as objecting to an argument that's only part of the argument that's being made and pretending that that's the whole of the argument when it, when it isn't. Um, Bill Craig puts it like this, Plato himself saw the solution to this objection. You split the horns of the dilemma, third alternative, namely God is the good. In Plato's terms of the theory of the form, Plato kind of identified God with the form of the good. And the moral argument is kind of saying not only is the form of the good something that's not material, so it's got to be a supernatural thing, but that form of the good has to be a personal thing in order to account for the fact that, that goodness is something that prescribes and obligates our behaviour, as well as being a thing that just exists. Um, that is to say, God is necessarily holy, loving, kind, just, and so on. God's character expresses itself towards us in the form of certain commandments which become our moral duties. God's commandments aren't arbitrary but necessarily flow out from his own nature. So, um, there's uh, some of the traditional objections to the argument and some of the traditional responses uh, to it as well. And I hope that kind of puts the whole debate about moral objectivism or subjectivism in this bigger context. I, I like doing that because, of course, everything is connected to everything in philosophy. Um, and we divide stuff up into all these little subjects in school, and they're all connected to each other, and at least philosophy allows you to look at all the foundations of everything. But you, kind of, you can't make choices in one area of philosophy, like, well, this is what I believe about moral values, without that having some kind of knock-on effect in other areas, like you know, political philosophy, obviously, or anthropology, what you think a human being is, or philosophy of religion. They're all kind of connected to each other in the end. Um, and what you make in one area will affect what you think in the other, what you think in this one will affect what you think in, in the other area, and so on. Um, it's interesting that the exam board didn't appear to realise that point because the way the exam is structured mm. in year 12 they have looked at um, arguments that link morality to religion or to God mm. and in year 13 on part 1 of the exam paper they are looking at critiques of those arguments yeah. and in part 2 of the exam paper so in other words they won't get a question that links them both they are looking at moral subjectivism, objectivism, and relativism. Yes. As a, it's, That's they, right. They've, they've um, taken Split them off. and applied yeah. ethical dialogue. Ah, which yeah. Are, and they put it into the yeah. applied I, I don't think you can make up your mind about one without making up no. your mind about the other at the same time, kind of because of the way that they're connected together um, and their structure. Now, no, obviously, you know. I, I, I've got my views, I, I've, I've been coming from a certain view and I'm very happy for you to, to disagree and you've asked some excellent uh, teasing questions and teased some things apart and um, had some agreements and some disagreements and that's absolutely fine. And I must also caveat, even if you thought that this was a, a decent argument for the existence of some kind of a god, which I do think, but even if you do think that, A, as I point out, it's god with a small g. It, it gets you some kind of transcendent, necessarily existent, all good personal being that has some kind of relationship to us, 
through these commands and obligations, but doesn't tell you anything about his knowledge, his power, um, what his broader purposes might be, whether or not he's revealed himself in any particular religious tradition. This is not the God of Judaism or Islam or Christianity. It's just a something out there, someone out there, indeed. Um, and, yeah, sorry. And to make your mind up about such a fundamental issue, you can never do it by just looking at one argument as well. Because even if you thought this was a decent argument for the, for the existence of God, you might think that there are other decent arguments contrary to this position. It's like watching any murder mystery. They always throw in a few red herrings at the beginning, don't they? And think, oh, it's going to be that guy. You know. Um, I was watching a Midsummer's Murder episode the other day, and he thought, "Oh, it's going to be that guy because he's the peeping Tom landlord." You know, he's obviously a bad. He's going to have done it, and he, he didn't do it at all. But all the evidence we had for the first half hour of the program pointed to his guilt, until you had a broader range of evidence come in, and then all the the, the balance of evidence pointed to someone else. Um, so you can have a good argument, a good bit of evidence pointing towards something that's not in the end the view that you end up taking um, but of course to, have to really survey the whole area is the work of more than a two hour lesson um, so uh, you know I think this is a decent argument that needs, that needs uh, wrestling with um, but um, I'm not here to kind of browbeat you over the head with a big stick and say well yeah that, that'll settle it for you then you should all now believe what I do because um, there's a lot more things to take into account and you know in, in the kind of teaching context like this particularly it's important to kind of say the main thing is that you get better at thinking through the issues think through them for yourselves make distinctions you're obviously good at, 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 at kind of looking at an argument and thinking you know, what are the different kind of things that it's talking about here um, putting potential objections to it and take the time to think about it and that's, that's great so thank you I hope that was useful and something a bit different for your long weekend <laughs> Anybody with any feedback? No, that's fine. But of course, so how do you disagree with me? It's not the logic of the argument. You think it's logically valid? Um, yeah, but, well, the exclusion to the Bible doesn't necessarily put to God. That's the only thing I disagree with. Okay, so, well, if we constructed it as an argument against materialism, you're, you're kind of happier with that than was an argument for a personal God. I think it's a better argument against saying there's just matter and that's it than it is a, an argument for saying there's some kind of a God. Is that...? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, okay. So you're, you're kind of happier to say this points to some kind of supernatural view but maybe there are supernaturalistic views that don't include a personal God that could still account for um, moral experience and so on. That's kind of where you're, yeah. So, what you're really wrestling with there is the the three arguments, the three kind of, three or, there are others, but ways that try and tie objective moral values to a personal supernatural reality. Um, and that is to say, is it true that, that these moral facts that are out there are ideas, in a sense, are ideals, where could they kind of exist except in, in a mind? Can you have something that's not physical, 
but not a mind. Well, you can have abstract objects if you, if you thought things like numbers were real, like Plato did. Um, you might think that you can have abstract objects like numbers, but which don't exist inside a mind. And lots of them. Yeah, that's interesting. That could be that Mara sees this rather than as a concept like that, and a lot more like numbers, like it's yeah. kind of a property of things. That's right. So it's just this, just this sort of part of the furniture of the universe yeah. kind of thing. So there's the whole discussion of can you have things like abstract objects without a mind for them to be in? Can they just exist? So that's, that's one whole philosophical area of debate. Then there's, is it true that these moral, these moral objects kind of, we experience them as, as commands, as telling us what to do. Can you coherently account for that aspect of, of experience without saying there's, there's a sort of intender behind the intent of them, the prescription, without a prescriber, a command without a commander? Or do you say that maybe you could say that aspect of morality is an illusion? There are moral facts, but it's an illusion that there are moral commands, maybe. And the third argument is this whole obligation thing. If I'm, re- if I'm obligated, but it's a transcendent obligation that goes beyond my obligation to culture or me or us, since I and us, we can all change our minds, or I can't be obligated to my evolutionary past to physical things like you know this bottle can't obligate me surely I can only be obligated to something personal that would be the kind of third argument but that's the kind of territory of those where the the main difference seems to be yeah, yeah. and there's obviously big underlying philosophical debates on all, all of those about the nature of abstract objects and, and the nature of persons and so on yeah Anything from the quieter table of, of the room as well? Well, just because you're theist doesn't mean you have to agree, agree, with, agree with the argument. You can agree with the position without thinking it's a decent argument for the position. I didn't use to because um, we, you presented it in a different light to, what, to how we learned it last time. Hmm. Um, with regard to atheists' views in accepting one premise but not the other, mm. before, and I thought that they were, that it was a bad argument because you had to accept the premises for all the conclusion and to get that conclusion, but. Um, you present it, no, I yes, I think I think what reading around what you do tend to find is atheists tend to either say yes, there are objective moral facts, but there's no reason to connect that to a personal god, or they say yeah, if if there were objective facts, there would be a reason to connect them to a personal god. But I'm an atheist, and to be consistent, that means I have to believe that there aren't any objective moral facts. Um, like Nietzsche, you know, consistent position, but so you, you, there, there tends to be some common ground. Or for any argument, it has to build on common ground. But yeah, that was what you could say. Uh, if objective moral facts exist, that doesn't have to point to a god. Y- yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, again, as you're saying, it, it depends whether if we're constructing it, we could construct it first. Uh, an argument against materialism, if you like, would be if there are objective moral facts, they would be 
non-material realities, non-physical things. There are objective moral facts, therefore there are some non-physical things that are real. Um, Materialism or naturalism is the view that only material things or physical things are real, therefore naturalism is false. But that conclusion doesn't uh, tell you anything about the nature of, of this supernatural reality other than there is a supernatural reality of at least one kind. But that doesn't have to mention a personal God at all, as you say. It's then a separate argument to say, is there something about the nature of these supernatural moral facts that means that the best explanation of them would be a supernatural worldview that included a personal God? That would then be a a whole separate step step of argument. You're quite right. Yeah.